but to graciously call us into a relationship with himself. And that's great news, that God has not abandoned us. He's not abandoned this planet. The one who made everything that there is, the one who made all of the good things that you enjoyed this week. Think about what you experienced this past week, and all of that came out of his mind, and then he created it, and then he poured it out into your world. That one wants to live for all eternity with you. Never had an offer like that from anyone else. And you think, wow, if I could just get my head wrapped around that, I would give up anything, joyfully, gladly, willingly, in order to be with him. And yet, we've noticed over the past two weeks that there are things that get in the way of joyfully embracing the kingdom of God. We looked at how wealth can make you reject what Jesus offers because it actually promises a better life. Or we looked at apathy, how that's a little more subtle, how it blinds you so that you're not even aware that you are treasuring something else. Both, end of, both of them end up robbing you of joy. This week, we want to look at one more ungodly response to the kingdom of God. It's an ungodly response that's fairly common to our region, fairly common to our neighbors, to our co-workers, probably common to us as well at different times. I know it's been common to me, but this one is sneakier. It goes under the radar and doesn't get taken nearly as seriously as wealth or apathy. So to introduce us into this topic, let me ask you, what would you say is the opposite of, un of godliness? What does ungodliness look like? And when I ask that question, I imagine that most of our minds sort of split the world into two categories, into the moral category and the immoral category. And we tend to think of blatant kinds of things, like injustice and racism, drunkenness, sexual immorality, rage, those kinds of things that everybody goes, yeah, those are bad things. If you fall into them, those are things that you should not be proud of. But scripture says there is an equally ugly reality that God is very concerned about. But it's an ugly reality that looks nicer, and it cloaks itself in this external morality, in looking like a good person. But it's a goodness that is not driven by a love for the Lord your God. It's not trying to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Instead, it has a different motive. Or it might actually be more accurate to say, it has many different motives. Okay, maybe it comes from the desire to feel good about yourself, a desire to think well of yourself, to think, you know, I'm a good person. Look at all of the good things that I do, and now I can put my conscience to rest, and I can get to sleep tonight. Or maybe you don't care so much about what you think of you. You're more interested in what other people think of you so that other people think that you're a good person. Or maybe you've discovered that if you do good things, you tend to stay out of trouble, that other people don't get as upset with you, that you have a nicer life. Or maybe you have learned that God will like you better if you're doing certain things that he likes. The list can go on of all of those motives, but the underlying theme is that you have developed some kind of external morality, some kind of goodness that has no connection to God. God's the source of all goodness, and so you have developed this goodness that is not from faith, which means what? It's actually from unbelief. And so you are pursuing goodness, not out of a love for God, but because you're hoping that it's going to get you something. You have an instrumental morality. You're hoping it'll do something for you. This is one of those strange categories because it's not the first one that hops to your mind when you think about unbelief. And yet it's something that God talks about as ungodly throughout Scripture. Now, there's lots of names that we could give to it this morning. We could call it legalistic. We could call it uh, fundamentalism. 
I don't want to do that because those words tend to be pejorative. They tend to be not, nothing that we really want to see about ourselves. I've never yet met the person who, who was proud of saying, I'm a legalist. So if we go down that road, we won't see it in ourselves. We won't see it in the people around us. We won't have a way of actually engaging our region. So let's talk about it today as religiosity. But we'll understand that it's all of those things kind of combined. Something that masquerades as faith while at the same time leading you away from God. And as you read through the scripture, you realize this is one of the primary things that Jesus addressed in his ministry. And it's actually from this thing that he's experiencing the pushback that Tim read about earlier in Matthew 21. Matthew 21, these religious leaders are coming and they're challenging Jesus's authority. The, we learn here that they are the chief priests and the elders of the people. And Jesus is now going to start a dialogue with them. And he's going to start in chapter 21, but he's going to talk in chapter 22 and through chapter 23 to these people. And as he engages them more and more and more, it becomes very obvious that he's talking to the Pharisees. And he accuses them of being hypocrites, of having this external goodness that covers up an internal corruption. They have an appearance of godliness, but he says, you don't have a heart for God and you don't have real concern for other people. And yet it's these people who are in charge of all the religious functions and the religious structure, the religious culture of Israel. And these people have come to Jesus and they're not happy with him. If you were to back up earlier in this chapter, you would see the source of their unhappiness. Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem. He's riding on a donkey and all the people are praising him. And he's letting them praise him and the religious leaders are not happy about this. He goes into the temple and sees that it's been turned into this place of business rather than a house of prayer, and he upends the money changers' tables and, and the sacrifices, and he throws them out. And the religious leaders are not happy about this. He then starts to heal people. He comes back the next day, and he's teaching people, and it's just way too much for the religious leaders. They don't think that he has the right to do any of those things. And so they come to him, and they ask him to justify himself. By what authority are you doing these things? And they think with that question that they've got him. Because there's only two answers here. He can say, well, it's this human authority that, I, that, that someone has given me. And they can turn around and say, but we are the temple authorities. There is no higher authority than us. Or he could appeal to God. Or he could even claim himself to be God. And then they'll accuse him of blasphemy. Now, Jesus sees this trap coming. It's not yet his time to reveal publicly who he is. And so he refers them, verse 25, back to John's baptism. He says, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. Who gave John his authority to baptize? And that creates a dilemma for them. It's the same dilemma for them that has always been every time John comes up. See, they've got a long history with John goes all the way back to chapter 3, where crowds of people are coming out into the wilderness where John was baptizing. And every time I read that, it, it, it feels a little strange, right? Because you read through the Old Testament, there aren't any real baptism kind of activities going. And suddenly in the New Testament, you have baptism taking place. And you think, well, where'd this come from? Is John just making this up? And you realize, no. It was a cleansing ceremony that already existed, it was for people who were Gentiles, people who were not Jews, when they wanted to convert to faith. When they wanted to come and embrace the one true God, there were certain things that they had to do as a convert, and one of them was they had to get baptized. And it was a physical way of saying, I am an outsider to the people of God. 
and I need to be cleansed in order to come to God and to embrace this God with faith and to become part of his people. So it was an admission of being unclean and needing to be cleansed. And John turns around and he says, it's not just for Gentiles, it's also for Jews. It's not enough to be descended from Abraham. It's not enough to be related genetically. You need to have something else. You need a righteousness, a goodness, a cleanness that you don't have. So repent and be cleansed, be baptized. That meant if you were a Jew and you were going out and John was baptizing you, you were saying, I am not good enough for God. And yet God is providing a way for me to get to him anyway. And that's what Jesus refers to back in our chapter, chapter 21, verse 32, when he said, John came to you in the way of righteousness. It's a phrase that would have taken people back into the book of Genesis. It's the very first time that the scripture talks about righteousness, and it talks about it, righteousness in relationship to Abraham. And we learn in Genesis 15, verse 6, that Abram, that's his name before it gets changed, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And that's the essence of a relationship with God. It means that Abraham did not have his own righteousness. And so God did not come to him and say, man, Abraham, you're such a good person. In fact, you are so good, you can be friends with me. He didn't say that to Abraham. Abraham, however, believed that God would do what he said he would that God would make good on his promises to Abraham, and it's that belief that God actually will back his promises. You can call it trust. You can call it faith. It's that belief that's the essence of a relationship with God. And that's what John is calling people to over 2,000 years later, to believe that in order to get to God that they needed a goodness, a righteousness that was way beyond what they could do. And yet it was a righteousness that God would give to them anyway. In other words, they could not carve out a path to get to God. But if they believed that God would, he would lay out a path for them. And people were absolutely thrilled to hear this. Lots of people. They flocked out to John. We're told in chapter 3, verse 5, that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to John, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. They wanted this. Now, Jesus does something very interesting as he's engaging the Pharisees in chapter 21. He doesn't talk about all of those people who came out to see John. He narrows it down to a very select group. He says to the Pharisees, the tax collectors and the prostitutes went out. The tax collectors, people who were greedy, political insiders, people who misused their power to take advantage of other people for their own gain. They were going out to be baptized, to embrace a righteousness that they knew that they didn't have. Prostitutes, the sexually immoral, sexually loose, sexually permissive, those who were taking advantage of other people's lusts or who were being taken advantage of by other people, they went out to be baptized to embrace a righteousness that they knew they didn't have. In other words, Jesus says it's not the beautiful people who are going out. He doesn't let us pretty it up this morning. He says it wasn't the people who had their acts together. These sins that are being confessed are not nice sins. 
They're bringing real ugliness. They're confessing that they have no hope in being good enough for God. And what did they find? They found a God who welcomed them, a God who embraced them, a God who wanted them, who made a way for them, who transformed them, who changed their lives. You say, wait a minute, but what? It kind of feels like you added that last piece there. What do you mean transform their lives? Well, if their lives had not been changed, if they were still living like they had as tax collectors and prostitutes, then the Pharisees would have laughed at Jesus when he used them as an illustration. They'd looked at him and said, seriously, that's your illustration of righteousness, these people? The Pharisees didn't laugh. These people who flocked to John to be baptized were transformed. That act of faith connected them with a God who absolutely, irrevocably changed their lives. And that act of faith connected them with a God who did more for them than all of the years of their religious instruction ever had for all of the time that they had lived in Israel. And yet Jesus says to the Pharisees, verse 32, you saw it and you still didn't believe, John. The religious leaders, these Pharisees, could not accept that they also needed a righteousness that they didn't have. They really thought that they had everything that they needed. And that belief made them think that they were in a different category, a morally superior category to everyone else. And everybody knew that that was how they thought. Jesus actually took that and he built a parable around it, told it to people in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And the purpose of this parable was to say this to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So the story goes this way. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, all of the blatant kind of immorality that's so easy to talk about. What's he do instead? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Here's my external goodness. But the tax collector, Jesus said, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus' conclusion is, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now, when Jesus told this parable, nobody called him out and said, you're being unfair. That's not really what the Pharisees are like. Instead, people are nodding along going, yeah, no, that's exactly what they're like. They think they're better than the rest of us. That what they do, what they say, how they think, the ways that they live, that that makes them better than everybody else. See, that's a problem with religiosity. It teaches you to focus on certain behaviors, and it teaches you to assess what kind of behaviors those are? Are those these kind of behaviors that are on this side of the line, or are they those kind of behaviors on that side of the line? And you realize that that's not a neutral line, is it? Because if you do these kind of behaviors on this side of the line, then what? You are better than people who are on that side of the line doing those kind of behaviors. Staying on this side of the line makes us morally superior to everyone else, lets us think that we live in a separate category because of how good we are at obeying the rules, at how good we are at staying out of trouble, at doing all the things that we're supposed to do. And it starts to convince you that your goodness, your external goodness that you can point to, actually makes you a different kind of person 
from other people. But it has a worse effect as well. It makes you think that you're good enough for God. And so when God offered the Pharisees a righteousness that would be good enough for them, when John, for him, when John called them to repent, they said, no thanks. We're okay. We're, we're doing just fine. We're good. They didn't jump at the opportunity. They didn't think they needed to. And Jesus' conclusion, chapter 21, verse 31, is that the prostitutes and the tax collectors enter the kingdom of God instead of you, in front of you, before you. Now let's take a small detour here and ask, why then would you be interested in being a Pharisee? What's the appeal here? They sound like pretty unpleasant people. They don't sound like people want to be around them, and yet they're a major cultural force in Israel. What is it that would make someone interested then in being a Pharisee? Well, for starters, they're the religious insiders. They are the theological movers and shakers. They're the ones who have devoted countless hours to studying theology, to studying theological questions. They know all of the technical jargon. They know what the words mean. They know why the words are important. They understand the minutiae, the nuances of all of the different kinds of debates, and they're the ones who have all the answers to all the questions. And you realize that if you're one of those people, there's a certain status that comes with that. You all have ex that experience as well, right? Think about your own discipline. When you master the knowledge base, you get your degree, you complete your internship, you pass your boards, your licensing exams, what, what do you start to feel? You start to feel like, okay, I, I now have something to say. I no longer just have an opinion. I actually am an expert in this field. Well, these people were experts. In what field? In the field of God, in the God, way that God interacts with all of life. In other words, they're part of the inside club, and their club does what? It is the club that claims authority over all other clubs. It's intoxicating. It's appealing. Why else would you want to be a religious person? Well, it broke down a relationship with God into very clear steps that were actionable, steps that were measurable. So without a shred of doubt, you knew exactly how you were doing with God. You could ask yourself, are you keeping the rules in every possible way? Yes. Okay, then all is well. No. Well, which ones are you not keeping? And now go keep them. There are no fuzzy gray areas in this kind of a world. You now had a way of knowing exactly where you stand with God. And when you're dealing with a God that you cannot see, that's really appealing. It shifts the focus from him to you, from what you can't control to what you can. So no longer do you have to trust him and his character. No longer do you have to have faith that he will be good to you simply because he's decided to be good to you. You realize that's kind of a risky decision to put faith in someone, right? Feels like you're putting all of your eggs in the one basket. What if he decides he's not going to be good to you anymore? Here's a way of managing risk, of spreading out your eggs in various baskets. Now religiosity comes and says, you don't have to trust him as much. You can do something that feels a little more dependable, a little more reliable. And so it takes faith and turns it into a formula. And it makes visible what used to be invisible. At the same time, there's a subtle implication. It gives you a way of dealing with the chaos and uncertainty of life. Because the implication goes this way. If you're on God's good side, 
if you are doing what he wants you to do, then what will he do? He will bless you, and he will make your life turn out a certain way. See, that's what formulas promise. If you do your part, then he will do his part. You think, well, okay, what, what, what would I like to have in my life? I'd like to be blessed financially. Okay, you know, here, here's a solution. Tithe. Go ahead and give God the first part of what you've earned, and you can expect him to do what? To pour out so much into your household that it'll make up for what you've given. Do you want your children to go to heaven? Then do what God said. Train them up in the way of the Lord. Teach them the scripture. Pray with them. Pray for them. Make sure they get to church. Send them to youth group. Do that, and you can expect them to love God. Do you want God to like you? To feel good about you? To maybe smile at you instead of frowning? Well, then spend some time with him. If you read the scripture and if you spend some time in prayer, God will like you more. And you'll feel that liking more. And that will then bless you in the rest of your day. You'll have a, a, a good day. Do you want a spouse? Then put God first in your life. We all know the promise, right? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will do what? He will give you the desires of your heart. We all know this. That's what makes the Pharisees' road most appealing. It's the if-then formula. The underlying implication that if you do what's right, then God will reward you. That means all you have to do is figure out what is it that you want, flip open the Bible, figure out what God wants first, do that, and now he will give you what you've wanted. The only problem, if you've ever tried this, is it doesn't work. It doesn't work because this is not who God is. He's not a formula. And yet, if you are trying this, it can be very frustrating. You can start to find yourself upset with God. And you start to say things like, I don't understand this. I did all the right things. I did my part, but he's not coming through. And you start to get upset at him because you're doing everything that you're supposed to do. But life is not working out the way that you thought it would. Now, that actually is an indication that what? That you've bought into something that has nothing to do with God. Okay, whenever you justify yourself, I did everything that I was supposed to do. You justify yourself at God's expense, but he didn't. That's an indication that you're in a different system. Here's another indicator. If you actually try living like a religious person, you'll discover that instead of leading to greater righteousness, it actually leads to less. For instance, if you are successful in keeping all of the rules, whatever the rules are, doing everything that you're supposed to do, you start to do what? You start to look down on people who aren't keeping all of the rules. It starts off very small, but you start to feel a little proud of yourself and proud of what you're doing. You start to buy into the Pharisees' arrogance, and arrogance by definition is not righteous. Or again, if you're successful, it always makes you a little uneasy about the future. Okay, today you might have made it. Today you might have kept all the rules, did everything that you were supposed to do, but you know what? Tomorrow's coming, and maybe you won't be able to do this all tomorrow. And if your relationship with God depends on how you do, you can never stop doing. And you can never stop doing perfectly. There's always that chance that you're going to slip up, your guard's going to be down. You might have a moment of weakness. And that means then that you are always living with anxiety. 
You can never enjoy a relationship with God because you have to keep earning his love at all times or the relationship is ruined. This kind of anxiety is not righteous. Or maybe you've tried your absolute best and, and you just cannot make this system work. You've done everything that you're supposed to do and all it's done is leave you tired. You're exhausted. You've had weak moments. You've failed more times than you can count. You've gotten the machine up and running again and you failed again, and you just don't feel like cranking the machine over anymore. You've thought, I'm never going to be able to make this work. You're demoralized. You're discouraged. You're not righteous again. See, if your hope of righteousness depends on you doing everything that you're supposed to do all the time, you're only going to find yourself becoming less and less righteous the harder that you work at it. Probably worse, however, is that you're going to blind yourself to what God is really doing. You won't see that he's in the business of transforming people by offering them a righteousness that they couldn't have any other way. It's Jesus' indictment of the Pharisees. He says not only did they refuse to repent when John called them to be baptized, but when they saw what happened to other people, verse 32, they didn't change their minds. And he calls them out for two different failings. First, they've rejected how God has always brought people to himself by faith. They've tried to substitute a system of religion to make themselves right with God. But secondly, he says, you watched. You saw other people develop a heart for God and start to desire God when they didn't before. You saw these people who were former drags on society who had never been helped by religion flocking to God, believing that God actually wanted them. Pharisees saw them enter the kingdom of God, and they refused to say, you know what, we, we blew it. <laughs> this is legitimate, and, and, and we have to back up, and we have to uh, say, repent ourselves and change our minds and get on board with what God is doing. Instead, they stayed stuck, refused to believe that John was a real prophet from God. And Jesus says, essentially, verse 30, you're the second son of the parable. You are the ones who outwardly look like you're on the same page with the Father. You're willing to say, yes, sir, I will. But inwardly, you've rejected what the Father actually wants from you. And Jesus is giving them a moment here. He's saying, pay attention not just to what you say, but to what you do. Your words say, I love God. Your actions refuse to come when he calls you. You don't love God. Now, what do religious people need? They can be unpleasant to be around, arrogant, anxious, worried, proud, full of themselves, been there, done all of that, and blind. What do they need? Here's what they do not need. They don't need to be ignored because you think they're just too difficult to work with. They don't need to be placated and you buy into their agenda as though it's actually going to work. And they really don't need you to gloat over them when they fail. What do they need? They need mercy, which is exactly what Jesus offers them here. Think about what's taking place in chapter 21. Verse 23, here is the king of the universe. Jesus has graciously decided to choose their century and their exact location to be with people who cannot generate their own righteousness. Jesus is in a class by himself. He is morally superior, and there is not a trace of arrogance. Instead, people are gathered around him. They know that he wants them and that he wants to be with them. 
And the very best way of engaging this amazing person, the best way that these religious leaders can come up with, verse 24, is to interrogate him about his credentials and where he got his authority from. And Jesus answers them. That ought to amaze you. They're using up the air that he created with the lungs that he gave them to challenge him in the moment that he is holding all the molecules of their body together. And he doesn't get so offended that he destroys them. Instead, he talks to them. What is that? That's mercy. It's grace. In other words, don't just look at what he says. Look at what he does. Look at how he engages them. Look at how he says what he does. Doesn't blow them off. Think if that's me, you, you got to be kidding. I don't pick up the phone when the telemarketers call. I don't talk to them. They're not sinning against me yet. Jesus is being sinned against, and he engages people, and he has a conversation with them. It's mercy. Then verse 25, he gives them the chance to be honest. He invites them to say clearly whether they accept John as a prophet or reject him. That was a really critical moment because John had a special role as the messenger of the Messiah. Not only was he going to prepare people by calling them to repent, he was to identify the Messiah. God had told him, when you baptize, you'll see the Spirit come down on someone. That's the Messiah. John said, I saw that. It's Jesus. And so Jesus is asking the religious leaders, do you believe God said that to John or don't you? It's a chance to be honest about what they really think to man up, to own their own beliefs, and they punt. Verse 27, we don't know. <laughs> now think again, if you're Jesus, what's going through your mind? You've been interrupted by these offensive people with their offensive question. You've answered them. You've worked hard to invite them to be honest, and they're playing games. What do you do in that moment? Throw up your hands, ignore them, walk away, zap them? Okay, I'm all done with you guys. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He crafts a parable just for them. Tells a couple more. And he tells this parable to try to get them to see how badly they need real righteousness. He actually even puts a question in there so that it's interactive, so there's a conversation. You realize he doesn't need this conversation. They do. And because that's their need, he makes it possible. He's trying to get them to realize that when God looks at us, we all are morally inferior. We're inferior in the only way that counts, that we are all in the same cohort, regardless of how good or how ugly our lives look, that none of us have the kind of righteousness that we need in order to live with God. And you learn here that Jesus doesn't just care about the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He doesn't just care about the people whose lives are, 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 whose failings are obvious to everybody who's looking. He also cares about the religious, religious people who look like they've got their lives all together, people who are successful at work, who enjoy what they do, who live in great neighborhoods, who are surrounded by families who love them. He cares about people who have it all, and yet they've, they're stuck, they've stuck themselves with this religious system that just will not work for them, that's devouring them with arrogance, anxiety, and despair. People who need real righteousness just as much as anybody else which is good news for us this morning, because wherever you are, 
there's cause for joy, cause for joy for you and for me, because God responds to all of our different forms of immorality by calling us to himself. And so he calls the political insiders and the politically unsullied. He calls the power hungry, and he calls those who champion the cause of the oppressed. He calls the greedy and the financially scrupulous. He calls the sexually liberal and the sexually monogamous. He calls all of us, lumps us into the same group, and says, no one is above reproach. No one has the kind of righteousness that matches my own, and no one can get that righteousness on their own. Doesn't mean that all lifestyles and all activities are equal. Some are more destructive with greater consequences, but it means that Jesus calls everyone who is immoral to repent, which means he calls all of us, you and me. And here's the good news. Here's why there is actually hope for both the religious and the irreligious. It's because Jesus is the son. He's the only son who's on the same page with his father. When the father came to Jesus and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today, Jesus said, I will, sir. And then he got up and he worked. And he worked, and he worked, and he worked his entire life. Never arrogant, never anxious, never despairing, never greedy, never power hungry, corrupt, sexually immoral. He worked, and he worked, and he worked for his father. Never once putting a foot out of wrong. He's the only human who ever achieved perfect righteousness on his own. And he's the only human being who didn't need it. He was perfect in heaven. He worked so hard for something throughout his entire life for something he didn't need. Why did he do that? Because his people were not perfect. And so Jesus came to earth to earn a righteousness as a human being that he could then share with other humans. Just like Adam shared his unrighteousness with the rest of humanity so that we are born unrighteous, Jesus can share his righteousness with all of those who embrace him by faith and become part of his family so that we are reborn righteous. That's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. He says, but now the righteousness of God, not our righteousness, but the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from anything that you or I can do. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. They point to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. If you believe, God will give you righteousness. He will make a way where you cannot make a way for yourself. And it's real righteousness. It's not fake. He's not pretending, okay, I'm just going to sort of look, overlook things. No, this is the righteousness that Jesus earned that you can now have given to you. You can know the smile of God. doesn't matter what you did this morning. You can stand before God without embarrassment, without shame, without all of that nagging guilt a righteousness that will transform your life. At which point you should say, but that, that, that's not fair. <laughs> I, I don't deserve that. I was counseling a couple one time. They were very well off. The husband managed a company whose purpose was to invest a sizable amount of money so that it could grow. But it wasn't just anyone's money. You and I could not have gotten in on this deal. It was family money. 
And so every year he called together all the relatives, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, cousins, and the purpose was to celebrate. And he would tell them how the company had done over this past year and how much more money each one of them now had in their account and how much they could spend over this next year. Now think about that. Think about who did all the work. Who did the hard work of investing, managing, safeguarding the money? Who made all the countless decisions? Who agonized over that? It was this one man. Who reaped the reward? Everybody who was related to him. Everyone who was family. Is that fair? Well, of course not. <laughs> but just because it was unfair didn't change the bottom line in anyone's account. They still had that money available to them. All they had to do in order to access it was what? To believe him. To believe that what he said was in their account really was, and then they could take that out and spend it. Could they ever earn it? Could they pay him back? No. They could be grateful. They could take that money and do something worthwhile with it. It's a little bit of what Jesus is doing when he gives us righteousness. We can be grateful. We can go back to him. We can say thank you. And we can take this new righteousness that we have and use it in a way that actually is valuable and worthwhile, that expand, extends his glory throughout this earth and lets other people see this is who God is. Why would you not want him? Let's pray.